Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin and my guest today is Angela Hoy. She's a writer and an award-winning journalist from South Wales, reporting on the hospitality industry, culture and food justice. Her bylines include the BBC, the HuffPost, Refinery29 and Vice, amongst other publications. She's also the associate editor of Sandwich magazine. Her new book, Takeaway, is a memoir of running and growing up in a Chinese takeaway. Angela, welcome to Monocle Reads. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, let's talk about your name, first of all, because it turns out neither of us are quite sure how to pronounce it. <laughs> it's my name. Um, yeah, hoi. So it's like high and a low inflection. It's kind of like a tonally. It's like a V shape. You were saying to me that even you aren't quite sure. And I think that takes us back, really, to your beginnings, because you really grew up in very much a hybrid culture. Tell us about your parents' journey to this country. Yeah, so my mum was born in China in the midst of the Cultural Revolution. I think she was like six years old when it happened. And then, yeah, it was just, I don't know if you know much about the history of the Cultural Revolution, but it was like the bloodiest eras in China during the 60s. And uh, that was like during the Chairman Mao regime. And she swam rivers to escape China to go to Hong Kong. And that's where she became a refugee in Hong Kong and then worked odd jobs as like seamstress, like waiting tables and stuff like that and then met my dad in Hong Kong so my dad is born in Hong Kong in Saigon in the New Territories and he dropped out of school when he was 13 I think and uh, he started selling noodles on the street selling cart noodles and um, I think at the time because Hong Kong was under UK rule so it was easier for a lot of Hong Kong residents to get British passports. So, yeah, they had like a lot of family who already moved over there. So they just thought it was easier to kind of resettle over in the UK. And when they arrived to the UK, they didn't have their own place, they didn't have a takeaway then. So they just kind of followed wherever there was uh, work. So they worked at restaurants and Chinese takeaways and places that had like living accommodation above. So they worked in London, they worked in Bournemouth before saving them enough money to eventually settle in Wales. So, yeah, a lot of people ask me, like, why why and how did you end up in Wales? Which is a very strange thing, because I feel like a lot of the Chinese community are dotted around the UK and they just kind of followed wherever there was work. But um, rural Wales does seem yeah. to be pretty extreme. <laughs> yeah. I mean, was there already an established Chinese community there? Not really. It's quite a small community. But the only reason why we moved to Wales was because it was cheaper. It was kind of the only places that my parents could afford. And my dad's side of the family all moved up and down the Welsh Valley. So they were close enough, but not close enough to be direct competition. So, yeah, we had family nearby in case there was anything that would happen or there was some support network nearby. So that was why we moved to Wales. And, yeah, like, I, I, I love Wales. Like, I'm looking back at the book, I'd never realised just how Welsh it is. Like I talk about a lot about my Chinese-ness because I am Chinese, but I also talk about my Welsh side as well. It's talking about the dual identity-ness of it. But yeah, 
I think as I've gotten older, I've kind of sitting more comfortably about my Welsh identity. And I always say to friends, like, I live in London now, but I always say, like, I'm always on the wrong side of the Severn Bridge. Like, I always <laughs> yearn for that. And there's a phrase in Welsh called hyreth. And it's this nostalgic longing for where you grew up and it's like tinged with sadness that's you can't really translate it in English. But I think it's the most beautiful thing because it's always this remembering your roots and this is who you are. And that's very much like what the book is mainly about, I think. Such a great word. <laughs> yeah. I'm so pleased that a word exists <laughs> yeah, for that yeah. because so many of us feel it. High ref. High ref, yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> now, growing up, the takeaway was called Lucky Star. Mm-hmm. You were the youngest of three and you kids were very much involved with the takeaway. T- tell us about that. Yeah, so our jobs were kind of interchangeable. So my parents are very adamant that none of us really worked at the kitchen because working at the kitchen was very hard, laborious job. You're standing on your feet all day. So my parents did the majority of the cooking. So my dad mainly did the walks. My mum was mainly on the fryer. We had some external help sometimes on the weekends. We had counter staff and deliveries, but me and my brothers were like interchangeable. We would do prep works. We would spend hours of the day chopping chasu or, you know, chopping mushrooms or um, cracking eggs into jugs and like massive vats of eggs and whisking them and during service we would you know press lids on the containers bag orders and then take them out to the customer we were kind of a bit of front of house and a mix of just helping out in the kitchen so whenever my parents like stepped out so my dad also sometimes did deliveries and my mum would go on the walk so then sometimes we would help out on the deep fryer station as well so yeah in that sense like it's everyone kind of all mucked in everyone did the job and no one really, you know, sat on the side and like, oh, I'm not going to do anything. Everyone just got on with it, really. But I mean, really hard work and in yeah. quite a hostile environment to racist. Sometimes you felt uncomfortable with older men approaching you over the counter. Tell us a little bit more about those downsides. I feel like they do happen, but it was always the 1%. The majority of people in Wales who came through our door, our customers, like our loyal customers, they were lovely. They, were, You know, people in Wales are just, I forget how friendly and hospitable they are. And they, they'll always kind of, you know, make sure that you're very welcome. They'll chat to you. They have a lot to say. But yeah, there is the old 1% who are that. And I think it's, it's not like out of malice, I would say. I think racism there is mainly just ill-informed. It's like it's that's what they know and that's what they were educated with. And I feel like I don't blame them in the sense where in terms of like racism. But yeah, I think as well, it's such a weird feeling looking back as I, I started working on the counter when I was eight years old and I worked there since I was 26. So pretty much grew up behind the counter. So, you know, and when you're dealt with racism and sexualization from such a young age, you know, 50 odd year old men were chatted up as 12 year old girl. It's a really odd thing. And you don't really really realise it in the time. You just kind of brush it off thinking, oh, this is fine. This is just part and parcel of the job. And it's not until you kind of look back on it later in life, like, actually, that was really weird. An old man just asked me to marry him and <laughs> relocate to Hong Kong. And I just thought it was just friendly chatter as a child. And all I really wanted to do was, you know, play and grow up like every other child when you know I was kind of relegated behind the counter I was taking orders but still doing homework so I just took it on the chin essentially that's how I really felt about it at the time 
And obviously it made me feel really awful about it, but not really realising until much later in life. Because you write in the book, I hate being Chinese. Why couldn't I have been normal in a normal family? Yeah, yeah. I think it's this torn, you're beating yourself up over it. It's like, why am I getting the kind of... um, Because I'm sat at the front of the counter, you know, sometimes with a counter assistant, sometimes on my own you're kind of the face of the takeaway. I'm kind of having to bear the brunt of most of it because you're dealing with customers. Or like I said, it's growing up, all you really wanted to be is just to fit in in school. You wanted to be popular, you want to do well. And being in a Chinese takeaway really made me, you know, stand out like a sore thumb in in a very, very wide community. And like, that's all I really wanted for the longest time. I really wanted to be a white person. And that's such a horrible thing to think about as a child. But as I've grown older and I moved to London, I've, you know, surrounded myself and did a lot of learning and unlearning, you realise like, actually I'm, I'm quite comfortable in my own skin now and this is who I am. I'm both Welsh and, and I'm Chinese. And yeah, that's who I am. I think a lot of people get very... You take it aback when they hear me, like, have a talk and I have a bit of a Welsh accent. They're like, oh, I I, I wouldn't expect that at all. So, and I find that amazing. Like, I'm very proud of, well, I wouldn't say proud is the word because how can you be kind of proud of what you're born into? It's just being authentically yourself in a way, I would say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You write a lot in the book about the sort of family relationships, the fact that there were language barriers between your parents, mental health was an issue, your father was quite hard on you, mm. he had gambling problems. Perhaps just go yeah. into that a little bit. <laughs> I mean, where do I begin? Um, I did um and R for ages, whether to include those, these very, very personal details, but I do feel like it's a common thing in Chinese families. It's a very... You know, Western values and Eastern values are very, very different, where Eastern families, they don't really talk about feelings. They don't really open up. They don't really have heart-to-heart conversations. So it wasn't until after I got the opportunity to write the book, I actually sat down with my parents and interviewed them and learned about their lives and talked about how they felt and what they were feeling and why they came over here. And it was only until afterwards when we had a bit more time. Um, Now that my parents sold it in 2018, they're semi-retired. So we have a lot of time to chat and just learn more about each other and catch up on lost time. And I really wanted to include those details because those are things that a lot of Chinese families like shy away from. They're, They're not things that we normally talk about. But I think it's also quite unhealthy to kind of suppress a lot of these things as if, oh, nothing's happened or I can't really talk to you about how I'm really feeling or, you know, really actually sit down and try to go to the root of the problem rather than just like you know, rather than just kind of bury the hatchet and just kind of move past it without really acknowledging it. Mm. I think that's such a, yeah, it's a very, like, old traditional mindset. But I think a lot of Chinese families and a lot of, well, Eastern values are slowly changing. They're slowly becoming a bit more open and, you know, becoming a bit more comfortable. And, you know, ever since, like, I've not stopped, you know, telling my parents that I love them and I hug them all the time and I talk to them more often. And and, and they're OK about the yeah, book? Because, I yeah. mean, you're quite harsh on your father. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing I was really worried about. I was worried about how my dad would be portrayed. And the thing is, it's those things did happen and I don't want to shy away from it. So we have a very complex relationship, but... They haven't read it because <laughs> because they can't speak English, so hopefully one day it will be translated. 
But I am really scared. I have had my Asian aunties condemning a book, essentially, just be like, oh, why have you talked about this? This is so personal. Why are you exposing it into the world? But I've also had other people talk to me and say that it really resonated with them. These are things that, you know, my, my dad gambled too and people felt exactly the same. But I wanted to show our complex relationship that it wasn't very linear. It wasn't very like, you know, we weren't always happy families. But I felt I wanted to show that we still loved each other very much at the end of the day. And we showed our complex relationship through almost like riddles. It's like he would show me his love through food instead of actually saying I love you. But I would, you know, I I was still working through our like past traumas and our arguments together. But I feel like I'm more closer to him now than ever, mm. you know, actually talking about it and actually telling him like I'm writing this book and these are the things that you did. And it's almost like a showing a mirror to his face. Like these are the actions that you did in the past. And it's almost... Like, you have to deal with these consequences and the things that you did. And, yeah, I think he's, like, realised, like, I think it was the pressure of the kitchen and being in such a high-pressure environment when you have endless orders and everything seems to be going wrong and it takes a toll on you, working Mm -hmm. in such a pressure job. And, like, I'm obviously not excusing his behaviour or anything that he did but I'm very very glad that I wrote it and I'm glad that we were able to kind of talk through a lot of the issues and yeah but I wanted to portray like I hopefully like I haven't portrayed him in a bad light because I do want to still show that I do love him Mm. and we're still very close. Central to all of this of course is the love for food (laughs) Yes, Uh, and that obviously comes through. I love the way that it's written that you actually give us recipes within the book. It reminded me actually of Nora Ephron and Heartburn where she does has the same the same sort of structure but I, I love that you told us how to make this food which really was something that bound the family together. Even on your days off you'd go off to buy the ingredients. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Chinese culture is all about food. You know, we have so many festivals and celebrations all centred around food as being the focal thing. I wanted to show how it wasn't always about the food bringing us together like happy families, but I also wanted to show the complex relationships that food also invoked. It was, you know, the food when you're really upset and it's like you'll be bribed with food also. It's like, well, I rejecting food as well and the sadness that's tinged in food so I wanted to show all the different you know relationships that you have with food and writing about food in itself like I really wanted to kind of play it up and you know make it as immersive as possible so I guess people were very hungry when they told me about (laughs) it and like writing food as well in like well Chinese it just shows how ingrained it is within our culture you know, when you have different words for f- uh, food for Chinese, there's so many different words and textures and flavors and smells, like describing all different foods. Or I can't even explain it. It's like textures they always have different words for. It's like there's one for like chew, or there's like words like danya, which is like bouncy. So it's like there's so many words in Chinese characters to describe food, and it just shows how integral food is. And it's, it's yeah, it's all about like the act of giving and the act of taking, gifting and just kind of using the time for food that we always had family meal before service, which was our own meal before we started cooking. And, you know, it was always a very balanced meal. So it was very just plain rice, steamed sea bass, some choy and some protein. And we would always sit together. Um, my parents always forced this family time on us. And those were the times I actually really appreciated, just taking the time out of the day, 
just to sit. Sometimes we didn't even talk. We would just be busy like eating or watching the TV in the background. And it was always interrupted with like an early phone call or someone calling in their order early. So we would always try to squeeze food whenever there was possible. And food was, for us, it was like not just nourishment. It was very much like part of love. And, you know, my mum could feed us until we explode because she is, well, my parents are the biggest feeders. So that's their way of showing love. They'll show up in different ways. Mm. Here in, in Britain, British people tend to refer to this kind of cuisine just as having a Chinese, mm. which I think is not a nice <laughs> way to put it. But of course, there are so many, I mean, you were telling us about some of those words, but also cooking from specific regions. Mm. And I wonder if your parents felt that they had to kind of almost bastardise their tradition to to cater for the British public, or if, if it was pure cooking from mm. their own backgrounds. Yeah, I think it's, it's the systems that was already in place. So, you know, my parents were one of the later comers for Chinese takeaways. They started in post-war since I think it was like the 40s and it just exploded. Like everyone was raving about Chinese food and then my parents came in the 80s. So it was already kind of adapted and westernized. My parents just kind of followed suit. And the yeah Chinese food, I think as well, it's adapted. Yes, it's partially adapted to British tastes, but it was also using quite innovative and just using what was available to them in Guangdong area, which is like the south of China and Hong, which encompasses Hong Kong. It's an area that's abundant of pork and seafood and rice. So a lot of those ingredients weren't readily available in the UK at the time. So they used a lot of, you know, tinned um, like bamboo shoots and bean sprouts and onions and peppers. So like very hardy vegetables and tinned goods. So that's what they used. And that's where kind of chop suey was made, came, like one of the most famous Chinese dishes were born. It was made from just mixing things together and the mishmashes, whatever was in the back of the fridge. And there was just stir fried vegetables with a, a brown sauce, which is essentially just, um, I think it was like soy sauce and sugar and just mixed and thickened with a cornstarch slurry. And that's the basis of chop suey. I would say with the adapting taste, it's, yeah, it's kind of like what they already, whatever Chinese takeaways were already doing. And I know a lot of Chinese, other Chinese takeaways, they took over old fish and chip shops from Jewish families. So that's why you get Chinese takeaways with also a chip shop as well. So I guess that's, they're kind of always evolving. So that's where you also get like half and half. So it's like a tray with like egg fried rice and noodles and chips and like gravy and or curry and sauce on top. So they were always quite innovative in in using what their surroundings was. Is it authentic? I mean, that's not like the term that I would say. It's authentic in its own way. It's kind of carved out its own path and it's its own unique thing. And I think it should be celebrated for it rather than looked down upon, mm. rather than, oh, you know, that's not real Chinese food. But it is real Chinese food. It's it's British Chinese food yeah. in its own lane, essentially. There was quite a lot of teen rebellion. Yes. Uh, you <laughs> fell out with your parents over various things of boyfriends, of what you were wearing and all the rest of it. And then you went off to university to study journalism. And I mm. wonder what it was that took you from the takeaway to journalism. 
Yeah, you know, for a long time, I butted heads with my parents. You know, I dyed my hair every colour, smoked, drank. Sorry, mum, if you're listening. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to find my own path in life. Like, I didn't want to be bound by the takeaway. I didn't want to always be known as the takeaway girl. And that's quite hard to escape when you live above a takeaway. Mm. And as I slowly went to university, I stayed local. I stayed in Cardiff, mainly because my parents wanted me to stay close by. So even throughout university, I came back on weekends or came back in the evenings whenever I had time to help out because my brothers had moved away to London and Manchester for jobs. And I was kind of the last person to kind of bear the brunt of it or take on extra responsibilities while trying to do my dissertation and everything. So I did feel a lot of pressure and stress, which kind of, you know, made me hate the takeaway even more. So I was very rebellious in my teen years as I was gearing up ready to fly the nest. I guess how I got into journalism was I I didn't have any contacts. I didn't know anyone in journalism. I It was just down to my English teacher, essentially, who really pushed me. Um, I went to a very, you know, public school and it was very, very rough and there wasn't a lot of support and teenage pregnancy was high and drugs, drug use was very high. It was a very deprived area. But yeah, it was my English teacher who really pushed me and I'd always had a fascination with magazines. There was just something about magazines I loved. I spent all my pocket money collecting all the awful, well, I would say awful, but the uh, teen magazines. It was like The Miz, The Sugar, The Smash Hits, Top of the Pops, and then got into music and then graduated to things like Dazed and Vogue and ID magazine. And yeah, I just kind of worked my way up. I did internships and everywhere and everywhere that will have me. So I worked at local newspapers. I worked for Media Wales and then went on to study university and then I got a scholarship and did an MA. And then when I moved to London in 2014, I carried on just, you know, carried on doing internships or anywhere else that would have me. And then finally, actually couldn't actually get a staff job in journalism because it was so competitive. So I actually started out in content marketing and ad agencies. So as I was doing that, I was freelancing alongside. I was just pitching to places that I really loved reading, just cold pitching every day, probably. With had... food stories, mostly? Not food so much. It wasn't until later. It was more about culture and pop culture and fashion and music. So I actually started out in fashion and music. And then when I got a job at a fashion magazine, I realised I hated it. I, I, <laughs> I hated all the people there. This isn't what I wanted to do. And then I got a freelance job working at a food magazine just by luck because I feel like I spent so much of my past and my life kind of avoiding food, having grown up within food and wanting nothing to do with food. And I wanted something completely different. I wanted to do fashion and music that was just, you know, on my own terms. And it was this realisation and then coming back to food, but it was very much like, oh, this is what I wanted to do rather than being forced upon it by my parents. When I worked at the food magazine, I was doing a lot of food styling and working with nutritionists and then kind of worked from there. The editor moved to another food magazine and brought me along. And I'd always kind of been permalancing everywhere, essentially. Permalancing. Uh, yeah. Love that word. And um, yeah, that's how I kind of got my foot in the door in terms of food journalism. I just kind of worked within like food shoots and then writing recipes online and then also doing features, interviewing chefs and writing about restaurants and 
and then yeah that's how I kind of built up it was just a lot of unpaid work a lot of time and hours but yeah here I am and then finally this wonderful wonderful memoir which has been beautifully received I mean you've had so many really really great reviews and it's just a lovely book I wonder if you've read uh, Timothy Moe's Sour Sweet yes yes I was actually one of the books that I was researching when I was reading my agent told me to read it and it's such a fascinating time told through Chinatown. I think it was in the 60s, I believe. It might be earlier. Yeah. I haven't read it for a while now. but I think it was the, it was yeah, the 60s. And, uh, and that also about sort of growing up in a takeaway. Yeah, and again, it shows the ins and outs of working in restaurant life and very almost like cash in hand, quite under the table at times, sometimes to do with gambling as well. That's the kind of similarities. And what I wanted to do was, you know, that that book had been out since the 60s and there really hasn't been that much in terms of East and Southeast Asian publications or books since the 60s, Mm. essentially, in the UK. There was a lot of Asian-American experiences and a lot of Asian-American stories, especially in the last couple of years where there's so much... TV shows and films are all about East Asian culture now. So, you know, say like Parasite, the Korean film that won the best film on Oscar and Crazy Rich Asians, which kind of mm. started a movement. And you're starting to see a lot more Asian faces in TV and film and magazines and books. And, you know, it's, it's a very long time coming. And I'm very glad that there's a lot more representation. And I kind of wish that there was books like that available when I was growing up. Absolutely. Well, you've done a huge service, I think, to everybody that comes after you and also to, I'm quite sure, your legion of readers because (laughs) this really is, is, is a lovely book. Takeaway Stories from a Childhood Behind the Counter. It's published by Trapeze. You've been listening to Monica Reads. Many thanks to my guests, Angela Hoy. Thanks to our producer, Nora Hull, and researcher, Emily Sands. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.